0: Anybody know what Sunday it is today? If you're like Anglican and what's the word? What? Lectoring—that's the one. That's not a, a verb, but we'll use it anyway. Anyone know what Sunday it is today in the calendar? Palm Sunday. Excellent. Palm with um, like the branches. So that's what we're we're thinking about that this morning. And Andrew read to us the passage from Mark's Gospel, where we get the sort of account of Palm Sunday. It doesn't just appear in Mark's Gospel, it's one of the sort of few things that appear throughout all four Gospels, so you can find it in any of them. I thought before we start that, I don't know how many of you like soaps. I don't I don't know if you do or don't, you know, like what are they called Eastenders and Home and Hollyoaks and you know all those sorts of things that I've never been allowed to watch from being young and thank my parents thoroughly for it. But some people like them. And I found out a while ago that they have a clever way of boosting their ratings. If they, if they feel their ratings are diminishing, what do you think they do to kickstart them again? What do they do in the stories of the people's lives? Any ideas? Somebody gets killed. See, that's what I always thought. And this, the person... It was actually in like a Bible study lecture thing. So the guy said, what do you think they do? I said, they kill somebody. He says, oh, you're a morbid lot, aren't you? So, but apparently, they have a wedding... And apparently that boosts, oh there's the wedding, we'll get back into it now and it'll start off again. Um, but yeah, so I think a bit of the Palm Sunday story is a little bit like a wedding parade. And you may think I'm a bit weird to say that, but I think we'll get there, hopefully by the end. So if you, you've got that in the back of your mind, there's this idea, there's a parade going on and it's a bit like a bit like a wedding parade. So you're right we on Palm Sunday and we look at it from Mark's Gospel. I'll just get that open so that I can uh, remember what it says. There's some great bits in this, uh, in this account that I've often wondered about, particularly the cursing of the fig tree, where Jesus says, may no one ever eat from you again. I've wondered so many times what's going on there. I've done a bit of research this week um, and I've made a bit more sense of it in my mind and hopefully I'll be able to make some more sense of it for you as well. So we'll sort of plow our way through the story. And then come back to the sort of four stages and see what we think. So what's going on is Jesus has been with his disciples. They're outside Jerusalem at the minute. uh, The villages of Bethphage and Bethany are a couple of miles outside Jerusalem, and this is sort of where the disciples are heading to. So they sort of get there. Jesus says, "Just nip into that village. You'll find like a young donkey. Nobody's ever ridden on it. Don't know how he knew." Uh, go into that village you'll find it It'll be tied up by a doorpost just go get it and if anyone says what, what are you doing taking that donkey which I imagine it's a bit like somebody you know if these disciples were around now they'd be coming up and they'd be like do you, just go in and, and get me that car and bring it back you would be like sort of picking a lock or I don't know and like, what, what do you think you're doing is effectively what you can imagine what's happening and they just the, the disciples are told to stay the Lord has need of it and off it goes. They say, oh, fair enough. I'll bring it back later. Oh, it's fine, it's fine. And one of the guys that I was uh, looking into on this, this passage said, actually, that's how we should be with our possessions. As soon as Jesus says, I need that, it's be yeah, fine, have it. Do what you like with it. So, so they, they, get, they get this donkey, they bring it back to him, and as soon as they bring it back to Jesus, somebody lobbed a, uh, lobbed a cloak over it for Jesus to sit on. And we'll come back to that in a bit. So then, they start heading towards Jerusalem Jesus and his disciples head towards Jerusalem and as he heads towards Jerusalem a big crowd sort of pulls in and crowds gather crowds don't they so all these people line up and they seem, it seems like they're sort of lining the streets ready for Jesus to enter through the city gates and they all are wild don't they they seem to absolutely love what's going on I think a, like uh, key to this in the Old Testament in Zechariah which is one of the minor prophets We didn't look at Zechariah in our Minor Prophets uh, series, because it's one of the longer Minor Prophets, which is a little bit ironic in itself. But it says, this verse in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, we don't quite know the Bible as well as Jews did back then. Their, their schooling was all pretty much just about the Old Testament. When you uh, when you would go to primary school in this country, they started you up and you would try and learn the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You'd try and learn those. If by the end of primary school you'd memorized them, word for word, all the way through, you'd be allowed to go to junior school. If not, you'd you know, go and work with the family. And by the end of junior school you were to have memorised From the Torah, right up to the end of the Book of Malachi, all of the Old Testament. And after that, if you were done, if you'd done well enough, you could go to a rabbi, and you could go to any rabbi you like, and you could say, can I be your disciple? And he'd get the pick of the crop. So all like the best top students would go and say, look, I want to be your disciple. And the rabbi could then question them they've got an interesting teaching method where they just ask questions and they respond with questions and it's to really try and pick out who knows the most and the, the rabbi might say, out of the three of you that have made it through, that are the top of the top that answer all my good questions, I'll pick you. You two, you can clear off and go do something else. So it's really difficult to get picked by a rabbi. Which actually, when Jesus goes to his disciples and says, follow me, he's slipping it all on his head. Normally, The people would go to the rabbi and say, Can I be your disciple? Jesus says, You come follow me. But anyway, that's a bit of an aside to say the Jews really knew their Old Testament. So when they see this man coming, and they sort of know about some of the things he's done, and he's riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey, in their heads, this little verse will have pinged up. I don't know if they they probably didn't have chapter and verse like we do, but they'll have known somewhere in Zechariah it says that our salvation is coming. The gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They'll have known that that was it. And they'll have been waiting for this day. Their saviour was going to ride into Jerusalem on a little donkey. And he's going to bring salvation to his people. I mean, if you bring it up to date a little bit, it's a bit like Jesus turning up to Jerusalem now. If he was going to ride in now, I mean, donkeys aren't brilliant, are they? Kings would ride horses. If you're going to ride on a donkey, you'd be... You know, quite humble. It's like Jesus turns up in a mini-metro and sort of poodles into Jerusalem, maybe breaking down on the way. He's not like in a, a Rolls-Royce or in a, a horse-drawn carriage or anything like that. He turns up in his mini-metro, his are in the back, they're all crammed in because there's not quite enough room, and everyone is lining the streets, and they're really excited about it. waving in palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is a bit. It doesn't, you don't read this in Mark, but you read it in one of the other Gospels where the religious leaders crop up and they go, Jesus, could you just tell them to shut up? They they shouldn't be saying this, this is wrong. Can you tell them to stop shouting out and praising you? And Jesus says, do you know what? He basically says, I could do that. If I do, the rocks will cry out. Well, if I was one of the religious leaders, I would not have a clue what to do with that sentence. I have a feeling it's why churches, some churches around the world, are in such disrepair. They've stopped praising Jesus inside, that the stones are getting ready to open their mouths, all buildings are going to come crumbling down when they, the stone starts speaking. Anyway, so they get in there, and I've never noticed before that actually Jesus gets to the, the gate of Jerusalem, he goes in, has a bit of a look around the temple, then he goes out. I all thought I thought this all happened on one day, so he goes in, has a look around the temple, sort of scopes the place out for tomorrow, and then he leaves. But then the next day, oh sorry, no. Um, so yeah, on the next day, on my way in. Jesus it says, Jesus was hungry so his tummy's rumbling he's heading into Jerusalem and he sees this fig tree a bit of a distance and he thinks oh, I, could just, I could just do with a bit of food if I take it from the tree it's free that's excellent so him and his disciples they go over to the tree they look at it they say it's not even a season for figs but Jesus seeing it have no fruit he curses it and says may no one ever eat from you ever again That all sounds a bit harsh. But we'll come to that a bit later on. So Jesus does that. And then he carries on to the temple. When he gets into the temple, he goes through the temple gates into the outer courtyard, the sort of furthest courtyard from the middle of the temple as part of the temple grounds. And in it he sees people changing money. He sees people flogging animals like pigeons and lambs and all this sort of stuff. With Passover coming up in a week's time. They're selling all these things. And Jesus... Gentle Jesus, meek and wild, becomes mental Jesus, fierce and wild, doesn't he? Everyone thinks of Jesus is like, I can keep him in a nice little box. He's really cuddly and nice, but he goes into the temple, and he goes wild. He starts tipping over tables, pushing people off their benches. It's just amazing to see that Jesus isn't safe like that. I mean, there's a great bit in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, one of C.S. Lewis's books, when one of the kids says... Oh, about Aslan, is he safe? And somebody that's with him says, "He's not safe, but he's good." And it's a bit like that with Jesus. He's not, he's not safe, but he is good, so it's all right. So he clears the temple, and then after after doing that, they um, he shouts at them, saying, "That my my father's house will be called the house of prayer for all nations." They leave the temple, and on their way out, they spot the fig tree. Peter, being probably the oldest disciple, speak, spokesperson for the group, says. Jesus, look, that fig tree that you cursed as we came in has already started to wither from the roots up. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus goes on to talk a bit about prayer and forgiveness. So that's, you know, a vague overview of the chapter. Right. Then. So let's just see what a few of these, what we can take out of a few of these sections. So firstly, we've said the donkey. So Jesus comes in, not like a conquering king, but somebody who's humble. It's like he's coming in in his mini-metro. You see Jesus he's like the embodiment of humility. He enters Jerusalem but if you look back to the Old Testament they can see that this is a king bringing salvation. So we can see Jesus' humility in this. Secondly it says they throw their cloaks over the donkey and on the floor for Jesus to to walk over on his donkey. Doing a little bit of research on this passage I found out that people tended to have one cloak like I don't know about you, I've got more than one coat but people back then, they would have one cloak a bit like a coat it's probably difficult to pick up the difference in the letter there, but they had one cloak and they'd use it to keep warm and if they were travelling, they wouldn't just use it to keep warm during the day, but they'd sleep under it at night and I think in the Old Testament if you were to use your cloak as a down payment for something, a deposit the person who you'd given it to would have to give it back for night, so that you could have it to keep you warm so they had this, this cloak And I think the reason they put that in rather than they say they just took some clothes over the donkey is it shows some submission. Saying, look, actually, I need this to keep warm and I need this to look after me but I'm willing to put what keeps me warm at the feet of Jesus for him to just walk over. I think it shows their submission to Jesus thinking that he's going to be this conquering king that comes in. Next one. Again, we don't see this in Mark but in the other Gospels we hear they they cut palm branches. He just says they and cut Leaves from the, the field. But we hear from the other Gospels that they go and cut palm branches, they wave them around, they're shouting Hosanna. And palms are still a Jewish national symbol. They're a sort of um, a symbol of peace and freedom and liberty. So it's like they're, they're celebrating already the liberty that Jesus is going to bring them from when he enters Jerusalem. And lastly, they're shouting this word Hosanna. And Hosanna literally means save us now. It, it's sometimes we think it means praise or worship or something like that, but the word Hosanna literally means save us now so they're shouting about the salvation Jesus is going to bring I think it's quite interesting that the first sort of couple of bits of that So it shows that Jesus is humble and they submit to him, but secondly it seems a little bit to me like they're sort of saying, wow isn't this Jesus chapter one we've read about in Zechariah Well, we'll submit to him we'll submit to him up to the point that we start telling him what to do we will go and get the palm branches, palm branches telling him to you know, free us and bring us peace. And also, save us now. I've got a feeling that what they were expecting was as Jesus rode into Jerusalem, what they wanted was Jesus to ride through the gates, head over to the Romans, kick the Romans out and give Jerusalem back to the Jews for them to, to run it themselves. I think that's what they were expecting Jesus to do. The Messiah, when the Messiah arrived for the Jews, they knew that the Messiah would be a political figure he'd be a, a military figure he'd be a kingly ruler this is what they thought, This is everything that was going round in their heads was our Messiah's going to come he's going to free us from our oppressors and he's going to bring peace and salvation to us all He must have been a real shock when he turned the temple over this person they'd hailed as the Messiah coming into Jerusalem the next day goes and he makes a big mess of the temple it feels a bit like they're sort of trying to tell him this is what you're going to do if you are the Messiah, this is what we want from our Messiah. We want like, liberty, we want salvation. Go and do it for us how we want. But I think Jesus basically says, look, I do things my own way. He's the only person that can say, like, it's my way or the highway, to put it bluntly. So okay. Then the next bit, the curtain of the fig tree. As I say this has always puzzled me a little bit. This idea that Jesus can go up to a tree not only can you say, may no one ever eat from you again and it shrivels up, but it just seems really harsh. I mean, do you not think it just seems a bit odd that Jesus says just shrivel up and die, basically, for this tree? And it does. I've never understood it. But I think essentially what's happening is, it's a private lesson here for his disciples. So it's away from everybody else, they're on their way in, back into Jerusalem from a couple of miles out at the villages and it's a private lesson, just Jesus and his 12 disciples he looked at this tree, he says may no one ever eat from you again when they come back that evening it's all starting to shrivel up and I think when I did some research it said even though it wasn't the season for figs if the tree was in leaf but there were no sort of flowers and buds then it wasn't going to produce any fruit so essentially, if it's not got any buds, which apparently were really tasty, travellers would eat them all the time. Uh, if they were hungry, they saw a fig tree, not fig season, but before, there'd be little buds on the uh, branches, that's the word. They'd pick them and they'd eat them, and they were really tasty, and you know, travellers would eat them all over the place. When Jesus saw the tree, it looked, even though it wasn't fig season, that there should be buds on it. So he goes over, to sort of pick off a couple of buds to eat, and, you know, keep them going a bit longer. But there's no buds. So if there's no buds, it's going to produce no fruit. So if it's budless, it'll be fruitless. And if it's fruitless, as a fruit tree, it's useless. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Look, it's not producing the buds. If it's not producing the buds, it's not going to produce the fruit. If it's not producing the fruit, it's a waste of space. So, and I think part of that lesson that Jesus wants to tell his disciples is so you may see things that look all well and good, but don't be fooled only the real things, only things that produce fruit are the, like the true things, but I think this is all coming up to what happens next, so Jesus says if something isn't producing fruit like it should it's useless and why do I think that happens? I think it's a private lesson about the appearing of the temple because this is a really public lesson, Jesus goes into the temple, it's the sort of the week before Passover, they've got the market out. You can just imagine sort of hundreds and thousands of people that would have been there, buying and selling, changing money. And yeah, trying to get all these things. When Jesus comes in, turns over the temples with all the money on, you can just imagine he does that and all the money flies everywhere. All the auctionmen are trying to stuff it into their pockets as quick as possible. anything anything's free that is good, isn't it? Anything free is good, that's what I am going to say. Everybody loves the free thing. But it's a really public lesson. There are thousands and thousands of people there. Jesus comes in, turns the tables over. And this is Jesus' public lesson. Where they are, they're in the outer court of the temple. So the temple is sort of split into sort of courtyards that go inwards. And right in the middle of the temple is the building, which has a sort of, is the temple itself. And inside the temple itself is a little sort of three metre cube room called the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's Spirit uh, was. And that's how God dwelt among his people. And as you went out, more and more people were allowed to come in. So from the centre, from the Holy of Holies, one priest could go in once a year. Into the temple, a few priests could go. Into the next court, uh, male Jews could go. Into the next one, female Jews and male Jews. And into the at most outer court, where Jesus is at this point, the Gentiles were allowed to go. And I think what's happened is. Jesus comes in, he goes through the gates of the temple and what he sees in the outer court for the Gentiles he sees just a market, a money-making system and what he sees is uh, these people they've taken what is good and perfect from my father they've taken this whole system and they've ruined it for the outsiders it's like saying that church is just for Christians we're not going to have anyone that ever you know if they're not a Christian, they're not allowed in we're going to make it awful for them effectively, if you were a Gentile if you wanted to know about God and you went to the temple, you went through the gates into the temple outer courtyard, all you would see is tables of money a place to buy pigeons and dogs and lambs. This outer court was meant to be a space for the Gentiles to pray. They were meant to be able to go to this outer court, they were meant to be able to pray, they were meant to be able to seek God, they were meant to be able to find out about God in this outer courtyard. And all they'd done, they'd turned it into a massive market, they'd wasted all that space that was meant to be there for the Gentiles. So Jesus gets rid of the offering market that was there. And I think that's really significant thinking about what happens in a week's time from this event when Jesus goes to die at Easter. We'll be looking at Easter next week so just keep that in mind. So Jesus gets rid of this place where they can buy all their offerings and things like that. But I think one of the key things that we read about even in Genesis, so in Genesis we get the story of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the sort of founders of Judaism that God's promise to them is that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In Zechariah, which I've taken my bookmark out of, not very sensible, talking about being a blessing to all people as well. And I think Jesus goes in, his public lesson is clearing out the temple from all these things that are taken away from God, saying, look, my blessing for you is not only to the Jews, not only to the Israelites, not only to the native Jews. But it's going to be for all people. You need to give this space back that God has said is for the Gentiles, for those outsiders that you call dogs, that you think are unclean, that are uncircumcised, that you really don't like. This is their space. This is their holy space. It's all they've got, so you've got to leave it for them. I think Jesus is trying to say, look, God is for everyone. He's not just for those like people born in Jerusalem. He's not just for the Jews. He's not just for those. He's not just for the holy people, the people that wear the right clothes, or have funny hats, or anything like that. He's saying God is for everyone. Anyone could come in and can find God. And then on their way out, they see the fig tree. They revisit the tree, and I think Jesus is teaching his disciples the private lesson is the outward religion is what they've seen from a lot of the Pharisees and the scribes. Outward religion is inwardly dead. So if all it's about is doing the right things, saying the right words nodding at the right time and sacrificing the right animal and there's nothing going on in your heart outward religion is inwardly dead and I think Jesus says to his disciples look if you want to bear fruit, if you want to be useful for me you have to bear fruit and that means the right things being in the right place at the right time the fig tree it didn't have any buds; it wasn't going to produce fruit, it was useless I think Jesus is trying to say you need to be real, if you're a fig tree you need to be producing figs if you're a Christian you need to be you know, being a witness so that you can see more people become Christians. I think he's saying to them, look, I don't want you to grow up and be like the scribes and the Pharisees who are so outwardly religious that there seems to be nothing going on in the heart of some of them. I want you to be real. I think that's Jesus' main point there. But he then also goes on to talk about forgiveness at the end of the passage that Andrew read to us. Which I think is it's an amazing passage where Jesus says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. I mean, I think that's an amazing verse for Jesus to say. He says, look, if you have anything against somebody, you have to forgive them. It's not a conditional thing. Jesus isn't saying, if you don't forgive somebody else, God won't forgive you. He's saying, look, God has forgiven you so much that you can't hold anything against anyone because what you're holding against them is just so insignificant compared to what God has forgiven you from that you need to be able to forgive them because actually that's what Jesus does. Jesus on the cross says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Uh, you know, with Jesus being uh, taken through the most suffering he ever goes through, he says, forgive, which is an amazing thing for him to say. But I think that's such a, a poignant thing for Jesus to say also, knowing that the cross is coming in a few days' time. So he's saying, look, if you're going to pray, you need to forgive. If somebody's annoyed you, if they've upset you, if they've wound you up, you need to be able to forgive before you come to God and ask him for things. So I think there are a few conclusions that we can draw from, from this account in Mark's Gospel. The first one is we can see Jesus' patience. The second one is that Jesus knows ultimately that he has to pray, pay a bride price, which is why we're thinking of the wedding. And ultimately Jesus wants a pure bride. Okay. Jesus' patience. When I read through this account, the bit at the beginning when they sort of hail him into Jerusalem, when he's riding in on the little donkey, the people are all shouting, Hosanna, blessed be, uh, uh, blessed be who comes in the name of the Lord. He could have ridden a wave of popularity straight into the city. He could have gone in using his divine nature. He could have kicked out the Romans. He could have brought Jerusalem back to be run by the Jews. He could have used his, you know, his charisma and his divine power to do that. But Jesus knows that there are no shortcuts in life. He knows that if he'd done that, he could have gone in, he could have given Jerusalem back to the Jews. But if he did it that way, then there'd be no cross and no forgiveness. So Jesus knows that he has to do things God's way. He knows that there's a, like an end game here. It's not about getting Jerusalem back. That's not what he's after. He's not about giving Jerusalem back to the Jews in this story. He's about making... The way to God, so that ultimately there can be a new Jerusalem, a new heavens and a new earth, and people can be part of it. Jesus knows, so there's no easy way out for him. Jesus knows there's not an easy way out, and he has to go to the cross. But ultimately, it's the same for us. We don't have an easy way out of being a Christian. If we're going to be Christians, it's not about thinking, well, if I'm a Christian, for say, like, six months, I read my Bible end to end, I've gone to church in all that time, then I can stop because I'm there. I've, I've completed it. I've done everything I need to do to be a Christian. I can just close my Bible, put it on the bookshelf, let it gather dust, and and that's it. And I'm I'm a Christian, and that's excellent. We don't arrive until we get to heaven. I think the Bible, uh, the life of a Christian, the Bible teaches more of a marathon than a sprint. We have to keep going, keep working at it, keep training ourselves, keep reading our Bible, keep praying. Cause there's no easy way out of being a Christian, and that's what Jesus is. Jesus could have ridden this wave of popularity into Jerusalem, kicked out the Romans and taken it for himself. But he doesn't. He knows the cross has to come a week later. And he went through it the hard way. And I think if Jesus can go through all that for us, we can go through the difficulty of being a Christian for him. The next point was that Jesus knows that he has a bride price to pay. Like I said at the beginning, it's like a a wedding parade as Jesus comes in. There's all these hundreds and hundreds of people there by like, welcoming him into Jerusalem. Ultimately, Jesus' endgame dying on the cross is not just to forgive people their sins, but he's paying an enormous price. God designed man to belong in relationship with him forever. That's how the Garden of Eden was set up. Man and God were meant to be friends. They were meant to be in relationship forever. So that was all separated. As an each sin, they turned away from God. They chose to go their own way. And ultimately, the end game for Jesus is going to be him marrying the church. Which sounds a little bit odd, but Jesus is described as the bride of Christ. And that's what he's going to be. But the way for Jesus to, to get his bride is he's got to make her pure. He's got to make her clean. He's got to make her holy. He's got to make her good. But the only way to do that in, in the, sort of the time of Jesus, uh, a young lad wanting to marry a girl would have to pay a bride price to sort of you know, say, well you're going to miss out on X amount, so here's the money that you can have so if, uh, if you've got daughters and somebody says to you can I, can I marry your daughter? say, well it's going to cost you and just take a bride price, whatever you can um, bag of jelly babies, bottle of wine, whatever you like but for Jesus it was much more than that Jesus knows who he wants Jesus has called and chosen his own but he knows that they're not a worthy bride he knows that the, the bride price he has to pay is his own life it's only through his own life giving of his own life on the cross can Jesus buy his bride back to a, a place where they can be forgiven for all their sins so they can be um, worthy of being in relationship with him and that's the only way that God His Father is going to be pleased with them if we, if we don't know Jesus we stand in a place where God is really angry with us because of our sin if we know Jesus our sins are forgiven and God can look at us and he can love us and he can be he can sort of look at us and think oh that's that's my little Joan isn't she wonderful oh, that's that's my favourite little Andrew isn't he excellent but if we don't know Jesus it's not like that because God looks at us and he sees all of our sin and he's really angry at it but Jesus took the punishment that God would pour out on us on the cross Jesus suffered so much that we don't have to if only we we'll put our faith and our trust in him Unfortunately for Jesus, he's on this sort of wedding parade, and ultimately, like I said, the end game is marrying the church. Jesus knows that there's a funeral before the wedding. I mean, if when um, William and Kate were getting married on the way to the wedding, if William said, Excuse me, just for uh, a couple of minutes, I've just got to die and come back to life before we can get married, then all the TV cameras would have been, probably been really annoyed. All the people watching all around the world, Archbishop of Canterbury waiting in the palace, the. Uh, in the cathedral where they got married he'd probably been a bit missed, but he probably would have sat down and had a sandwich waited for it but they didn't they just sort of carried on and got married for Jesus his end game is getting married to the church but the only way he can do that is if he dies and comes back to life first so for Jesus' wedding parade he's got to die before he can get married to the church and lastly like I said Jesus wants a pure bride for Jesus the only way that he can get get married to the church as if the church is pure it's holy and that it's good and that all comes through being faithful to Jesus loving him whose desire is for us to be a worthy bride to him it's a bit it does always sound a little bit odd doesn't it that we're all going to get married to Jesus in the end that'll be a massive wedding banquet that's how the bible talks about it Jesus loves us that much that he's willing to come and die for us and he wants us to be pure he's bought us at price the price of his um, his very self but I think the difficulty for us if Jesus wants a pure bride, we need to be real followers of Christ, which means difficulty, it means suffering for Him. Anywhere in the Bible, you won't read, become a Christian, it'll be really easy and everybody will love you. He says, become a Christian, your life's probably going to get a bit more difficult. You know, people are going to mock you and they'll, you know, they'll say all kinds of difficult, difficult things. But you know what? It's worth it. I can, Jesus though I can bring you joy and more joy than you can fit in anything To bring you so much joy, so much love but it's not going to be easy you think with somebody saying that to you, you think this is brilliant, there is no downside to being a Christian but Jesus says, look, if you say these things, people in the world are going to think you're a crackpot people are going to think you're insane but Jesus wants a pure bride, and for us to be Jesus' pure bride we have to be real followers of Christ so I thought I'd leave Let's finish with this final question. Which is, are we, here in Rotherham, living as Jesus' bride-to-be? And it's, one of the things that's really good about this is it's not about me, and it's not about you, but it's about us. The church, the whole church, all Christians around the entire world are Jesus' bride-to-be. one, like All one body. All together. So it means, if I'm struggling somebody of you might be able to help me. If you're struggling, we might be able to help you. It's all about all of us pulling together and trying to live as best we can like Jesus with his help. And I think as well, this is not something for us to be like, well, what, what have you been up to? Have you, not been, have you not been following the Ten Commandments this week? Have you stopped doing that? It's not about any of that. If, have you been reading your Bible this week or have you forgot to pray this morning? It's not about that. It's thinking, actually. It's not about being shamed into being a good Christian. It's all about being encouraged by the Gospel, thinking, actually, I really want to be a good follower of Jesus because Jesus died for me and one day I'm going to be with him forever so I might as well like practice now for what it's going to be like in heaven I might as well try and live in a relationship with Jesus now, today, this week, next week, next month, next year in a way that it'll be like forever even though it'll be better in forever because there'll be no problems my knees won't ache I'll be able to hear alright my hair won't look silly when I get up in the morning so we might as well practice for the future by being who Jesus wants us to be now. But it's a difficult thing. And it's all about us being together as one, spurring each other on, encouraging each other with the gospel, saying, look, Jesus died for you, isn't that wonderful? No, Jesus has died, he's risen again, he loves you, isn't that great? And because of that, you know, let's pray, let's read our Bible, let's find out more about him, all these sorts of things. It's not about thinking, oh, I've not read my Bible today oh, Jesus is going to be really cross. It's about, oh, I've not read it today, but I know what's in there and I'm really excited to read it now. So I'll get out and I'll read it. It's not about beating ourselves up, it's about being really encouraged by Jesus to say, I want to be Jesus' bride, I want to do it faithfully, and in the future, I'll do it perfectly because I'll you know, be with him in heaven forever. So there's a few thoughts for you on Palm Sunday. Next week, we're going to look at Easter Sunday itself. Um, and in fact, next week, We're going to have a family service, all the kids will be in, and I have a few things up my short sleeves of illustrations and stuff like that, that I always pull out in emergencies. So we'll see how that goes next week. So I'll pray, and then we'll finish with a final song, if I can find out what it is. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, thank you that your word teaches us so much about the Lord Jesus Christ and about you. And Father, I thank you that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. Father, thank you that Jesus taught his disciples and he taught people publicly about what you want for people and Father, I thank you that you're not just the God of the Jews, but Father, you're the God of the whole world. and Father, thank you that you want to bless every nation and all peoples and Father, I thank you that because of Jesus and what he 's done, that that can be true for us. Father, thank you that you can love us through Jesus. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand more and more the amazing relationship that we can have with you through Jesus. Father, help us not to be ashamed of being of struggling at being a Christian. And Father, I pray that as the bride of Christ you'd help us to be spurring each other on, to become more and more like your dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.